Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nutmeg Book Drops High School Edition. I'm your host, Christina Carpino from the Essex Library Association. I'm joined by three other librarians today. I'm Sarah Briggs from the Weathersfield Library. I'm Amanda Ursinus from the Harwinton Public Library. Skillen Johnson from Farmington High School. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing When My Heart Joins the Thousand by A.J. Steiger and Sadie by Courtney Summers. Be sure to read these titles before joining us for the discussion. If you haven't read the books yet, no worries. Stay tuned for a little preview of each one, then head to your local library to check them out. When you finish reading them, join us to listen to the rest of the episode. Nutmeg Book Drops is a new podcast brought to you by Librarians Connect. Librarians Connect is a group of public and school librarians from throughout the state of Connecticut. Find us online at bit.ly slash librariansconnect. When My Heart Joins the Thousand is written by A.J. Steiger and published by Harper Teen. Obviously, I'm not what most people would describe as happy but that has nothing to do with anything. Happiness is not a priority. Survival is. Alfie Fitz doesn't fit in, and she doesn't care. She spent years swallowing meds and bad advice from doctors and social workers. Adjust, adapt, pretend to be normal. It sounds so easy. If she can make it to her 18th birthday without any major mishaps, she'll be legally emancipated. Free. But if she fails, she'll become a ward of the state and be sent back to the group home. All she wants is to be left alone to spend time with her friend, Chance, the one-winged hawk at the zoo where she works. She can bide her time with him until her emancipation. Humans are overrated anyway. Then she meets Stanley, a boy who might be even stranger than she is. A boy who walks with a cane, who turns up every day with a new injury, whose body seems as fragile as glass. Without even meaning to, she finds herself getting close to him, but Alvy remembers what happened to the last person she truly cared about. Her past stalks her with every step, and it has sharp teeth, but if she can find the strength to face the enemy inside her, maybe she'll have a chance at happiness after all. Who do you think would uh, enjoy this title? People who like the Big Bang Theory. Yeah, I think anyone who's looking for a book with not neurotypical characters um, that are played, you know, played out very well um, and likable characters. Um, because I think that the author really did do a nice job of developing, um, you know, Alvy with her, um, you know, aut- I-, I read as autism, but as, as her, you know, uh, neuro difficulties. And then with Stanley with his, um, you know, physical disabilities, I thought both of them were developed really well. So I think this would be a great book for anyone looking for those kinds of characters. I mean, it, they call it a love story on the, you know, when you read the little blurb, which when I, at first I didn't really think of it as a love story, but the more I thought about it, the more I was like, you know, this is kind of like Sea of Tranquility, maybe like a little bit of Eleanor and Park. Like if you like that sort of a slow burn love story that really is based on true con- connection and recognition, of each other, then yeah, it is a love story. And I definitely wouldn't say that this book is a comedy. There's a lot of very serious topics in here um, and a lot of, you know, difficult times, but there are also some parts that are uh, 
non-typically funny where I did find myself just sort of visualizing the situation and having a little chuckle. (laughs) Sadie is written by Courtney Summers and published by Wednesday Books. A Missing Girl on a Journey of Revenge, a serial-like podcast following the clues she's left behind, and an ending you won't be able to stop talking about. Growing up on her own, she's been raising her sister Maddie in an isolated small town, trying her best to provide a normal life and keep their heads above water. But when Maddie is found dead, Sadie's entire world crumbles. After a somewhat botched police investigation, Sadie is determined to bring her sister's killer to justice and hits the road following a few meager clues to find him. When West McRae, a radio personality working on a segment about small, forgotten towns in America, overhears Sadie's story at a local gas station, he becomes obsessed with finding the missing girl. He starts his own podcast as he tracks Sadie's journey, trying to figure out what happened, hoping to find her before it's too late. What kind of person would love Sadie? I think if you're a Mindy McGinnis fan, uh, female of the species, um, be not far from me, because, um, I mean, at the core, Sadie is really a survivor, and she has to deal with some really horrific situations, and she has to think fast, and she has to be um, skilled, and she has to be prepared, and she can't really let her guard down, and I think that um, Mindy, Mindy McGinnis touches on a lot of those same types of themes and characters. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's a it's a thriller that unfolds very uniquely. Um, so it's very much like you're on the edge of your seat reading, um, but it's not. It's less about the plot and more about the characters' reactions to what's happening um, and the uniqueness of how it's written as a podcast. Um, so I know a lot of readers have enjoyed who enjoyed listening to like murder mystery podcasts. Enjoy reading this book and even more so like listening to this book as an audiobook. Yeah, I definitely want to point that out, that this is, I think, the greatest audiobook I've ever listened to. It is so well done. So if you are on the fence about reading this book and you enjoy audiobooks, I definitely recommend doing it that way. It is available through Hoopla if your library has Hoopla. All right, there are spoilers ahead. So if you haven't read these books, check them out from the library and come back when you're done. We'll start off by discussing When My Heart Joins the Thousand. This book was, it kind of hits you right off the bat with a little bit of an awkward opening and then jumps back in time a few weeks to kind of show you what led up to that moment. Um, But we have our our main character, Alvi, who, um, as we mentioned earlier, is neuroatypical. And then she forms a relationship with a young man named Stanley, who has um, brittle bone disease. And they kind of learn how to navigate relationships when neither of them is really familiar with having um, one-on-one relationships with others. Alvi's job, she works with animals. um, And one animal in particular is Chance, who is a bird that has been injured and has a lot of trust issues. And Alvi is building a relationship with that animal. Why do you think Alvi is so drawn to chance to the point where she's willing to risk unemployment and eviction for, for him? I think she just sees in chance. Um, he's just, he's not very understood. He's not very understood. He's not very appreciated. Um, he's, you know, he's kind of fearsome, but he's been injured. 
Um, and she recognizes that in order to build a relationship with him, she's going to have to be very cautious and she's going to have a lot of patience. And in a lot of ways, what she's willing to do for him is what it's so frustrating that so few people in her life are willing to do for her. Um, and I think that, you know, maybe she just sort of identifies with, um, with his struggles there. And I also kind of think in a, in a weird way, you know, when it opens, she's talking about wanting her emancipation. She wants to legally be an adult and Chance was a wild animal. Now he can't live in the wild anymore because his wing is too damaged and he's trapped in this cage. So yeah, I think she wants to see him have um, the best life possible because the issue of freedom is something that's so on her mind. I think you just said it perfectly because I think she, Chance mirrors who she is um, broken, abandoned, alone, misunderstood. Um, and I think she, what she wants in her life is really what, um, what she wants for chance also. So Sarah, I think you said it perfectly. She also has a lot of trouble talking to people. So I think from what I've read, um, people who aren't neurotypical have a lot, much more easier time relating to animals than they do to people. Um, talking to them or just being around them. So that could also be a factor. I found it very interesting how Alvi was so adamant that animals have feelings and have emotions because I think that she had difficulty connecting with other humans and recognizing her own emotions and recognizing the emotions of fellow humans at times but then she was able to recognize those emotions and animals. And in fact, she ends up breaking into the zoo after she's fired to steal the sign that said animals don't have emotions. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you all think? Do you think animals have emotions? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. 100%. <laughs> I think that's why there are so many animal gifts out there. Um, I definitely communicate with some of my friends just through animal gifts because they just say so much about how you're feeling. <laughs> Alfie's in this very unique situation where she is living independently. She is a minor still. She's living in her own apartment. She's seeking emancipation. Um, and she's visited regularly by a social worker. And I thought that the relationship between her and her social worker was was interesting. It, it slowly built as the story went on. I'd like to hear your thoughts on that relationship. I felt like he wanted to do more than what was allowed. Um, like you could, I got the sense that he did deeply care for Alvy, um, but like couldn't like had to like live by the rules of what he was supposed to do. And there was like, you know, a checklist and checkbox. And he like kept her on track for reminding her like what, what she had to do in order to um, meet her emancipation. But I did get the sense with some of their conversations and how there, it did kind of unfold a little bit with the relationship that like he wanted to do more, um, but couldn't because of the restrictions of his position. I can't imagine being 17 and trying to have my own apartment and hold down a full-time job and not have any other human connections that just sounds like such a daunting task for anyone let alone someone who's been through what she's been through I think 
that's what made it partially what made it so frustrating when she does lose her job at the zoo and she's going through the application process and they're asking her all of these completely ridiculous and irrelevant questions. Um, and what's funny about it is because like it is true to life. Like I distinctly remember filling out applications just like that. Um, you know, asking what is your philosophy of good customer service? Like one time I had to take this questionnaire, it just went on and on and on. And it was all like different ways of asking me, like in this scenario, would it be okay to steal from the company? And I mean, like, how do you even answer that? And it just, it got like so repetitive. Um, it's like, you know, it was like Dr. Seuss. Like I will not steal on a train. I will not steal on a plane. <laughs> I don't know. It was just, um, and I'm, I'm, thinking, okay, so if I found it really frustrating to go through all of these applications um, and she's finding it really frustrating and these are all for low level jobs, these are minimum wage jobs um, that they're putting her through this. And we know from her zoo experience, how reliable and hardworking she is, how honest she is, how conscientious, conscientious, I can't say that, we're gonna have to edit that out. Um, <laughs> And in a lot of ways, she's an ideal employee, and that's not coming through on these applications at all. That was definitely one of the parts that I was laughing, and I, I wasn't laughing at Alvi. I was laughing because I understood her frustration. <laughs> I mean, you have to sit there sometimes. It's like, if you were honest and you went into, you know, an interview at, you know, McDonald's, for a job and they're like, why do you want to work here? And everybody wants to say, I want to work here because I need money to pay rent. And it does make me wonder how much that process is holding back people who are neuroatypical because they can't just sit there and lie. And why do we want our employees to lie to us? Well, when she eventually gets hired again, it's by um, a woman who I think she said her nephew is autistic and um it, it shouldn't i mean i i'm i'm admire that she is you know taking a chance on alvi and you know understands because she has um firsthand experience but she shouldn't need firsthand experience it isn't fair um to alvi to be written off by so many other potential employers um so let's talk about alvi and stanley which is the main relationship that this story centers around alvi kind of sees him in the park every day and then she's actually the one that makes the first move which I was a little bit shocked by um and their relationship unfolds through a lot of text conversations um which if you joined us for our last episode when we talked about Eliza and her monsters that was a similar situation there where they're communicating a lot through writing and through text so why do you think Alvi feels more comfortable starting off the relationship like that I think she can hide all of her insecurities or how she knows she comes across differently than everyone else because in writing it's it's writing and you just write it and you get it out and so there's no having to make eye contact there's no second guessing what the person is thinking it's you know it's it's just what it is yeah talking to someone on a screen where you can pause and take time to think about what you're going to say first you don't have to see their face to see their reaction to what you're saying. Um, and that's, I can imagine would be a big deal for this character because she's so used to being treated poorly and being judged by everyone constantly. 
So if she has some sort of filter between her and the other person, I imagine it would feel safer. I kind of wondered if she wasn't, because she's also kind of forward, well, very forward physically, um, right at the beginning of the relationship. And I almost sort of wondered if that wasn't a way to avoid a potentially deeper connection, because we know at this point in the story, she is not ready to open the vault um, and face what happened to her in her past. And having a physical relationship with somebody is um, kind of a good way to sort of feel normal or like you're ticking off a box of what normal people do in their normal lives or whatnot without actually having to take an emotional risk that she may not be prepared for right now. Yeah, so let's let's talk about the vault. How yes. does Alvi find the courage to to face what she's kind of locked away inside of herself? I was horrified by the vault. I would never have been able to open the vault. That would have stayed shut forever. I I knew it was going to be something big, but I wasn't anticipating it being what it was. Like I, I was anticipating, I guess I, I kind of got to a point where I figured that it probably had something to do with the mother's death and that potentially the, that the mother had committed suicide, but I was not prepared for the way that it happened. <laughs> it was heartbreaking in a way that, you know, when you read other books that have, you know, difficult topics, um, you can kind of like car- compartmentalize it a little bit. Um, but this one, like, really, like, just tore my heart apart. Uh, and I just wept for, for Albie. Like, my heart absolutely broke for her in that moment. Um, I just can't even fathom having to had live through that. I wonder if part of the reason, too, that it was harder for me as a reader is because Alvi's were so much in Alvi's head and the way that she discusses things is very straightforward um you know she doesn't kind of beat around the bush at all it's just sort of like here it is (laughs) and um so I think that may be why it was just like so much all it was like a wave that hit you because it was just so so the way that she talked about it was just so almost disconnected from the situation too just because that's how she processes things I think part of her motivation for eventually opening the vault is, you know, at this point, she has made that connection to Stanley and she's seeing that she can't get any farther with him or with any real life goals for her if she doesn't do this. She's starting to see now what is she going to miss out by remaining detached. Stanley also set the stage for her. Like he was so vulnerable with his own illness and disability that, um, you know, she saw him at his weakest moments um, and he allowed her into his space. So I think that also set the stage for her to like open up a little bit and let out her like most difficult, challenging times. He does make it safe for her to do that. Yeah. Mm hmm. From a literary perspective, I feel like as soon as they mentioned the vault that it was going to open. So I think in my head, I was just kind of like, this is going to happen. It's not even a question. This has been introduced. (laughs) So I kind of like built it up even more in my head because I knew it was coming. But I was I was still surprised by by how heart wrenching it was for sure. It made me so sad 
for Alvi that she didn't have more advocates in her life after that happened because she was already struggling in school. We see that she was struggling in school from a young age and that the school didn't really seem to be advocating for her the way that as a former teacher, I know should happen. Um, but then when on top of it now, community knows that she's been through this traumatic experience, it seems like the system as a whole really failed her um, in providing the services that she needed to cope with that. And even her um, employer at the zoo, like she made me so angry because at the core, I'm like, you've got to know that like she's, you know, neuroatypical that she has other things going on. Like give, like give her a chance. Like, it made me so angry that she wasn't like trying to work with her more because she knew how deeply she loved her, her job and how good she was at taking care of the animals. Um, so I do think this is also a good example of, um, you know, like influence and privilege um, and, you know, talking about having family or having, you know, being a community that might be a little bit more well off where something like this happens, like the community embraces you and brings you in and takes care of you. And that wasn't the fact for Alvi. Do you think that Alvi and Stanley make a good couple? I really like them together. <laughs> I, from the first chapter, it's the first chapter, right? Where she, yeah. Yeah, um, has approached him. <laughs> I don't know how to phrase it, but I was not sure how that was going to go. And I wasn't sure if they were going to get together and if I would be able to relate to this story or see it as a cute romance. But it totally took me by surprise because it ended up being a really cute story. Um, cute is probably the wrong word, but they definitely they seem like they fit really well and they're able to communicate very well and to bring each other out of themselves. Um, and I really like the way that, um, I think it's the last chapter, she talks about feeling lucky as relates to him being in her life. And she says that um, after she survives this horrendous accident or suicide attempt by her mother, um, the doctors say, oh, she's really lucky. And she has this moment where she's like, am I lucky? I don't really feel lucky. But then she feels that way having him in her life. I have to say that I think, I think Alvi took a lot more in this relationship than she gave. Oh. Uh, especially, I mean, in this chapter of their relationship, I think by the end, now that she has opened the vaults, I think that moving forward, that will change. I think that it will be a, a more equal footing in the relationship. But I, I did kind of feel like Stanley was doing everything that he could. And she was kind of not intentionally, but like she was just blocking him at a lot of different avenues. Um, and I just kept wanting to be like, just let it. He, he just wants to love you. <laughs> just let him love you. He was very much the epitome of like the understanding, persistent boy character. So one thing I noticed when I was typing the questions for this is that Alvi is the same letters as Alive. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if that was intentional by the author. That would be really cool if it were. I think I'm going to have to do some research to see if anyone has talked to the author about that. Because I think like she she's a survivor of 
you know, almost drowning. And like, she's, I don't know. So I, I wasn't sure if that was intentional or not. Just thought I'd bring that up. <laughs> I hadn't noticed that, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, and I can't remember how they, like the author so beautifully weaves the title in, but the author, um, like the title has meaning. And then when they like refer to it at the very end and it might have something to do with the lucky part. Um, and I feel bad, I can't remember, but I, I thought that was so clever and so well done. Mm -hmm. So that would not surprise me at all if the Alive and Alvi was intentional. Right, because to her at the beginning, she thinks of when my heart joins the thousand as being when you die, um, kind of, because that's how it's used from Watership Down, but then it kind of turns into a message of hope instead. Yeah, Thank I you. think- I had totally forgotten how those two were connected. Yeah, I have to say that I never read Watership Down because the first time I picked it up, I was like in second or third grade and my teacher very kindly was like, that book is not what you think it is. Because <laughs> um, I was in like a banicula phase and I think that she was like, you just saw bunnies and, and just maybe wait on that. <laughs> um, Talking so about book covers not matching their content. Yes. yes. So, um, I have not read that one, but it this book made me want to go back and and read that I just want to reread it because all the quotes that she pulls from it I don't remember those exact quotes and they're just very very powerful and I think the first time that I read it I was a lot younger and I was reading more for the plot and sort of missed a lot of these other nuances so I think it would be fun to, to revisit so the format of this book I think is really one of the I mean I'll be honest, I loved this book. I am kind of obsessed with this book. <laughs> um, it was very difficult, but it was so good. And I think one of the reasons to me it was so good is because of the format. So we have the narration by Sadie, which is going on in, in one timeline, and then kind of backed up a couple of months from that, we have the podcast that is following her disappearance. Um, if this were a real podcast, do you think it's something that you would tune into? Are you oh, a yeah. true crime <laughs> podcast listener? Yeah, I think it would make an awesome podcast, except for the ending. <laughs> I do like my murder mysteries wrapped up in a nice little bow at the end for me, but a lot of true crime is not like that, so. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get to, we'll get to the ending at the end here, but because there's a lot to talk about there too. I really wish that I had listened to it as an audiobook because I think I would have liked it more. Mm -hmm. I think it was really well written, but it was not my favorite. Um, it was probably my least favorite of the ones that I have read so far. But I'm also not a horror thriller girl. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very well written and well done. I think I would have liked it a lot better as um, an audiobook because I'm a huge fan of podcasts and of mysteries in general that's why we have this podcast except we don't have a mystery going on <laughs> uh I don't know librarians are very good at researching things though so I feel like that could be a potential future podcast true send us send us your unsolved mysteries and we'll, we'll <laughs> research and find the answer <laughs> This is definitely not my genre either, but I loved the way this book was written and really interesting. Um, they had said that this book had been a Nutmeg nominee for the past 
like on the like contender list for the past three or four years, but that because it wasn't out in paperback, they couldn't put it on the list because that's one of the requirements is that it's paperback. So they're like, this is the last year. This is the last year that it would qualify as a nutmeg. And it's finally out in paperback. Um, And luckily they had told us that like after we had discussed the book and people had said it was a great book. Um, But I know, you know, being teaching at a high school, um, this book is like never on our shelf. Every kid who is, and there's so many students who are murder mystery fans right now. We can't keep our serial killer books on the shelves. Um, this book gets so much action in our library. Yeah, I definitely think that there's a huge, uh, huge audience for this. Um, and I do like thrillers. So I will say this is definitely my genre. Um, so at the beginning, we are introduced to Maybeth, who is Sadie's kind of surrogate grandmother. And she's the one that's interviewing with Wes McCray on the podcast about she just knows that something's not right with this disappearance. Um, So I really liked seeing the relationship between Sadie and Maybeth. What were your thoughts on that relationship? I had a hard time getting over um, her support of Keith when it was clear that Sadie didn't like him. Mm-hmm. And I understand from her perspective why that that might have had appeal. He, you know, he would quote unquote pray with the girls. He did not drink. He seemed like a stabilizing force for Sadie's mom. Um, but the fact that nobody listened to Sadie is a failure on a lot of levels. And some of that does fall on Maybeth as much as she did for the girls and tried to do for the girls. I feel like she did the best that she could um, with her, with what she had. I mean, cause she, you could tell definitely had her own struggles within her own family. Um, and it was just sad because truly Maybeth beyond Maddie, Maybeth was the only person who truly loved Sadie. Um, and that just was like heartbreaking that that's all, that's all she had. I don't know how it came across on the audio book, but when I was reading um, her, her portions of the podcast, it sounded to me like she was almost a little bit removed from the situation. And so I found it really hard to feel any sympathy for her because I feel like if I knew someone that went through that, I couldn't imagine them sitting in a recording studio and talking very calmly about what was going on, but that might just be a very personal reaction. Um, But I wasn't a huge fan of her. Yeah, I feel like in the, in the audio book, because it's a full cast audio. Yeah. um, So I do feel like she was emotional at times, but also I think that she, I think that some of the stoicism comes from her just being determined be like no like I know that something isn't right this she didn't just run away like something is going on here yeah, um, like it was her last resort to be on the right phone. exactly like she was just so desperate for somebody to believe what she knew to be true gotcha but I I do, definitely agree with what Sarah said there that I did not care for how she felt about Keith but I also don't know how much of that had to do with the um, 
dramatic irony where we as readers knew what was going on, you know, we're ahead of the game in some ways. So as soon as we hear her talk about Keith, we know that that's not how Keith really is. Um, so we have more information than she does, but it does seem like there should have been some recognition that something odd was going on there. Mm. So what kind of sets a lot of this off is a postcard that Maddie gets, presumably from her mother, that makes her determined to try to get to California to find her mother. And we find out towards the end that the mother did not send that postcard, that Sadie sent that postcard. Do you think that Sadie regrets that? I think it's part of what motivates her so strongly is that she feels partly responsible for what happened. Like if she hadn't done that, even though it was well-intentioned, it wouldn't have set off the chain reaction of events that led to Maddie going off with Keith. I agree, absolutely. I mean, I think it's part of why she doesn't really care anymore, doesn't seem to care anymore what happens to her. Yeah, it's almost like she she had nothing else. Like knowing that her sister was gone and then knowing that she could have had a part in that, she had nothing left to live for. Yeah, there's nothing more dangerous than someone who has nothing left to lose. <laughs> yeah, that came very clearly across because there are definitely certain points in the book where I was, like I felt really nervous, not just because it was a thriller, but because I was trying to figure out what she was going to do next. Because the situations that she was putting herself in, the choices that she was making, it was very clear that she didn't care what happened and she was going to go for it. And as a non-thriller reader, that's the point where like, if it was a movie, like I'd have the blanket up over my head and I'm like, oh my gosh, don't do it, don't do it. Um, there oh, were yeah. so many moments like in the middle of the book that I was like, oh no, please like just go back home. Like um, I had, I just wished for her that that was not the path she was taking. Um, but I think that was part of the, also the thrill that like kept me reading is that like you needed to see what was going to happen next. Oh yeah, it was really well done. I was like reading faster and faster, you know, in that mood that you get into where you're like, I need to know what happens. Even if I'm terrified, I need to. <laughs> That's the one downside of the audiobook is like, you can't just speed through it. Like yeah. <laughs> Sadie is forced to really take on a lot of responsibilities from a young age for a multitude of reasons. How would her story be different if Maddie had never come along, if Maddie hadn't been born, do you think? I mean, obviously she wouldn't be off searching for this, but her maybe her relationship with her mom or the rest of her story. I almost feel like she would have kind of ended up a little bit like Alvy, maybe leaving home early, striking out on her own and doing her own thing. And also having a really difficult time trusting other people because of what happened to her because I think you know even without Maddie Claire would have still ended up with Keith or somebody like Keith or some version of Keith seen in my mind in my Disney ending her mom would have gone to California um she would have been under Maybeth's care and like not had a great life but had you know a, a, a better life or the best possible version of a life that she could have being as like seeing how broken her, her childhood was. And her relationship with her younger sister is definitely, I mean, unfortunately, 
I don't want to say it's abnormal because I think that there are a lot of teens who end up being in a parenting role for their younger siblings. Um, I think even more than people realize. But do you feel that that was a, a healthy relationship? I feel like if one of the siblings has to be a parenting or caregiver, um, fulfill a parenting or caregiver role, then it's never really as healthy as it should be. She loved her sister and it seemed like that relationship gave her a lot. Um, when they describe when her sister is born, how that changes Sadie and affects her life, it's a very powerful moment um, because she feels empowered and taking care of her sister and for the first time very much attached to another person but it definitely seemed unhealthy because then as a child, she had to take on the burden of her sister's well-being and she wasn't really prepared to do that. Well, and then Maddie starts rebelling against her too, which is more typical for a parent-child relationship than a sibling relationship. And that's really confusing and hurtful to Sadie. Yeah, because as an adult, when you're a parent, having a kid tell you they hate you, you, you like when you have children, you'd like set your mind up that that's what's going to happen. But to have Sadie love Maddie so deeply and not be old enough or, ha or mature enough to understand that, you know, she's a tween, she's going to rebel. She's going to have these moments where she's not going to love you the same that you love her. But she was, I don't think that she was um, at all prepared for that, nor should she be at the young age that she was. Mm -hmm. And it just made me sad that like she loved her sister so deeply and I don't think her sister could have ever understood how how deep that love went because she was just so young. I think Maddie was all that Sadie cared about. Uh, we don't hear any mention of other friends or um, she has a very difficult relationship with her mother. She does seem um, somewhat attached to Maybeth uh, but I think when it comes to real love I think it's just Maddie. So towards the end of the story, Sadie's mom comes back into the picture. And when she realizes what, what has gone on, did your feelings towards never change by the end of the book? Hey, like, I mean, she clearly was a broken person too, to have, you know, abandoned her children and then to ignore the fact that there were things happening in her home that were happening. Um, so part of me does have a little bit of empathy for her because, you know, sh she was broken too, but I'm just angry at her that, you know, she wasn't there and this happened. I think interestingly, that's really when my opinion of May Beth started diminishing <laughs> because when Claire does show up again. You know, Maybeth has a lot of reasons to be angry with Claire. Um, but when Claire does show up again, you can kind of see how Maybeth didn't really make anything easier for Claire. She's very judgmental. Um, you know, we, as the reader, we know what Keith was up to, but so did Claire. He knew and, or she knew. And, you know, Maybeth was just like, oh, you know, she ruined it. Like she did all the other relationships. Um, she just, is very willing to write off Claire because of Claire's addictions and behaviors. I agree. I feel that Maybeth could have been much more supportive, but at the same time, 
it's not really her responsibility to be supportive either. I mean, this isn't a family member. This isn't even really a friend. It's, it's a neighbor. I mean, sure. how many of us would have that type of a relationship with, with our neighbors? But also, I think as, as humans, we, you know, we feel responsible for, especially for the care of young children in our community and wanting to keep them safe. Um, and I think that that's why Maybeth steps in in the first place. Um, so I think maybe because it doesn't seem that Maybeth and Claire had much of a relationship before Sadie, Maybeth really only steps in to take care of Sadie, not to take care of Claire. Um, and I think if she had stepped in to take care of Claire, then it would have been a much different story. I understand that Maybeth is not the villain. I just didn't like her. <laughs> that's totally valid. I didn't really like any of the adults in this book. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of really bad adults in this book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it can be very disheartening. So the end. I listened to the end of this on my lunch break one day, and I was just in the program room. Oh, no. Bobbing hysterically out loud going, no, there has to be more. <laughs> We are left with a lot of questions. Um, what do you think happened to Sadie? I think she's dead. I really do. I just, so many times in the book, she got herself in over her head. And it was part of what made it realistic because, um, yes, this is a story of, you know, a, like an avenging character, basically. But she's not a superhero. She's just um, an ordinary girl. And although she's very clever and resourceful, there are many times when, you know, she gets injured, she gets bested by people. And I think that that's sort of, it makes the book more realistic that she gets in over her head and she would clearly be in over her head um, fighting Keith. Yeah, that's true. It is a realistic ending for sure. As someone who does not like thrillers and who only really finishes them to figure out what has happened, I was pretty upset <laughs> because um, I will get through something just to figure out what happens. And then when I got to the end, I was like, oh my goodness, I put myself through this. <laughs> and now I don't know. But I know when authors and artists do that, it's usually intentional um, to make some sort of point. I mean, I think, I think the reasoning goes back to the beginning where... Wes McRae, who's doing the podcast, says girls go missing all the time. And the idea that that then Sadie, when Sadie does finally track down Keith, there's another young girl that's that's in his life. And she sees that this girl has been damaged and has gone through this trauma. She can recognize that in her. So I think it's sort of like to to remind us as readers that the unfortunate truth is this is something that happens regularly and we often don't get answers and that should make you angry and that should make you want to make change um really interesting point like she purposely didn't give closure because in most cases you don't get closure yeah i think that if you got closure um you wouldn't be left with this desire to to fix something. I think that this book in a lot of ways is a call to action um, to not rest until there are no more girls that go missing. That makes me like it a lot more. 
in case you couldn't tell, I really liked this book. <laughs> I, I had a hard time. Honestly, I think because I listened to it the, the first day I was listening to it and the, I was the podcast portion and Wes McRae is talking about Maddie and how he's like, I'm not even going to say how graphic what happened to her was. And then he says, like, I don't remember if she was 12 or 13, but he says, like, she was only 12 years old. And it just ended there. And I was driving. I'm, I mean, I'm getting emotional just thinking about it right now because I honestly, in that moment, forgot that I was listening to a book because mm-hmm. the story is so similar to, unfortunately, to so many true life tales that I was just like, this is, this is what's happening in our world. And yes, it's fun to listen to true crime podcasts, especially when the crime has been solved and there has been justice in the end. But the unfortunate truth is that happens, that is the minority of cases. Um, And I'm sure on the resource page for this one, I'm going to do my librarian magic and find all sorts of resources for listeners. So if you want to make some changes, I, I will have places for you to find them. So both of these books deal with very difficult issues of abandonment. So both Alvy and Sadie have no knowledge of their fathers, really. Sadie's mother took off dealing with addiction. Alvy's mother has serious depression issues and ends up committing suicide. Comparing and contrasting kind of how these two characters dealt with or didn't deal with their trauma. I mean, we see that kind of uh, Sadie uses her trauma, I think, to empower herself uh whereas alvi i think it holds her back a little bit more yeah she locks it up until she can deal with it which is a pretty normal response to any sort of trauma like that to put it up on a shelf until you can actually process and look at it again and in sadie's case it's it's what fuels her like that's what motivates her to keep going because she has nothing else left in her life um I think we see a very typical fight or flight thing here. Mm-hmm. So we see Sadie fighting and we see Alvi running away. You know, she's physically moved away from where she grew up and she's just puts it in a vault and is like, I'm not going to ever think about that. <laughs> you know, one of the, the big differences is how, like in, in how they end up is Sadie's all alone like she's you know lost the the one person that she loved deeply whereas Alvi starts off the book alone and is able to kind of survive and and process her trauma because you know first she she finds Chance the bird um, and then she has you know this relationship with Stanley that develops so it's it's giving her something to live for and to be able to like deal with that trauma and process it. And I think Alvi wants to process it towards the end. She wants to move forward with her life. And Sadie has decided right from the beginning of the of the book, it's clear that Sadie has decided not to. This is the end game. This is not um, her path to growth in any way. Yeah, she is not looking to forgive and move on with her life. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely striking to place them side by side because they're such different responses to trauma. And I think both of these characters also have their own, like, you know, their own difficulties communicating in different ways because Sadie has a stutter that she's had her whole life 
and Alvi is neuroatypical and doesn't always know how to connect with her peers. Um, I mean, we see she has a lot of difficulty with customer service because she's just going to say it like it is. So I, I just, I found it really interesting looking at these two books side by side, because I think that we have, I wonder what would happen if the, if these two characters met each other. That would be an interesting fan fiction chapter. <laughs> I, I mean, I will say that Sadie was not my favorite, as I said before, but I am glad that we talked about it because I feel like oftentimes being in a book group, you hear so many different perspectives and sometimes it helps you to understand a book better or to see it from different angles that you might not have approached it from. So I'm really glad that we discussed it. I agree because when my heart joins the thousand is not one of my favorites. I found Alvi personally very difficult to connect with, but I really enjoyed hearing what all of you had to say because I think it gave me a new perspective on that one. I think with Sadie, the book is just unrelentingly dark and that was kind of my first takeaway from it. And I really like the interpretation of it being a call to, act, call to action um, because at first, you know, when I first put it down, it's like, that's, that's just so bleak. I don't even know where to go from here. I agree. It, it gave me new perspective um, on reading it to think about it in a way where it's, um, you know, we have to help so it doesn't happen again. And I'm interested to see, you know, I have a lot of students who, like I already know, love Sadie. Um, I'm really interested to see now that it's on the not Meg list, because we've had When My Heart Joins a Thousand on the shelf for a couple of years. Um, but I'm interested to see what students' perspective of it is. Because um, I think, you know, we unpacked a lot, but I, I'm curious to see, you know, how they respond to, to Alvi. Because I think a lot of times, instead of wanting to um, deal with or see people in a difficult situation, you just want to turn your head. And I think that's what a lot of people did in Alvi's life was, you know, she was difficult to deal with her, you know, um, a neurotypical, like they just, you know, or neuroatypical, they just, it was easier for her to be at a distance than mm -hmm. to deal with her up front. And I'm hoping that students will see past that um, and readers will really connect to her the way that, um, that we connected to her. And listeners, as always, uh, we would love to hear your thoughts. You can email us at librariansconnect at gmail.com because we would love to hear what you thought about both of these books. Um, and maybe we'll post some comments on our website too. Speaking of website, you can visit us online at bit.ly slash librariansconnect. Fans of When My Heart Joins a Thousand should check out The Perks of Being a Wallflower by Stephen Chomsky, Marcello in the Real World by Francisco X. Stork, and The Sea of Tranquility by Katia Millet. If you enjoyed Sadie, check out The Female of the Species by Mindy McGinnis, Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens, and I Hunt Killers by Barry Liga. We'd love to hear your thoughts on these books email us at librariansconnect at gmail.com. Join us next time for our discussion of A Curse So Dark and Lonely by Bridget Kemmerer and Grimoire Noir by Vera Greentea. We'll also have an author interview with Vera. Happy reading! <laughs>